We'll hear argument first this morning, number 9344, the Turner Broadcasting System, Inc. versus Federal Communications Commission. Mr. Farr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The government defends the must-carry law primarily by analogy to the antitrust laws, saying that it protects the broadcast system from anti-competitive actions by cable operators. But there is a critical flaw in this argument. The law does not just prohibit anti-competitive activity. It prohibits all decisions not to carry broadcast stations for whatever reason the cable operator may choose. Thus, we submit the government must put forth an interest to justify what the law actually does, which is to override all editorial discretion with regard to carriage of broadcast stations. And we further submit that neither interest put forward by the government can meet that burden. First, an interest in promoting particular programming does not meet the burden because government can't generally promote speech that it favors by the means of ordering others to carry it or by discriminating against disfavored speech. And the interest in protecting the economic viability of the broadcast system as a whole does not support the law because even without must-carry, Cable systems carry the vast majority of broadcast stations, and the broadcast system is conceitedly thriving. Well, Mr. Farr, there is, we have a situation where one uh, medium has a limited number of channels, and does the government have no interest at all in seeing that those channels are opened up? I think the government... Others on a neutral basis, for example... Justice O'Connor, I think the government has an interest in seeing that cable operators like other businesses, including like other members of the press, do not make decisions about what to carry on an anti-competitive basis. And if the law was narrowly directed to that problem, then it seems to me the case would be different. But the law is not. The the dissenting uh, judge uh, on the panel below uh, suggested an alternative way that the government might proceed. Would you like to comment on that suggestion? Justice O'Connor, I, I don't completely agree with Judge Williams on the idea that least access channels are a less restrictive alternative for two reasons, even though, quite frankly, it, it is in one sense a helpful argument to us. The first is that even least access doesn't require any showing of anti-competitive behavior by the cable operators. It is, again, a law that is directed to all cable operators and simply removes discretion from those operators to program particular channels, whether they've ever engaged in any economic misconduct or not. What if a municipality uh, chose, or perhaps if the federal government had the power, the federal government chose to say that all cable operators must be merely, uh, merely carriers? We're not going to allow anybody to put uh, copper under our streets uh, in order to carry their own programs. I think it is... You have to be like the telephone company. Anybody who wants to use it may use it. Although I wouldn't concede it, I suppose it is possible that at one time that is something that could have been considered. But now we have a system with operating cable systems. Why is that any different from Justice O'Connor's least access uh, proposal? It's just doing it wholesale instead of, uh, instead of uh, for a limited number. Well, that's correct. As I'm saying, I, I have a, a difficulty... You think that would be unconstitutional, too? That's correct. I do. I, I think at least to the extent that one is saying we are do going to take... Do it for telephone take... companies. Is it unconstitutional there? It is not unconstitutional for telephone companies because they are not essentially engaged in the business 
of providing news, information, speech of that nature to the public. Does that sort of define the problem in a way that makes it easier for you? Uh, why is it illegitimate to look at the, uh, at the operating companies simply as carriers as opposed to originators uh, and say that in one respect, i.e. their respect as carriers, uh, they, are, they are subject to obligations the way the phone company might be? What, it seems to me that the particular activity that the must-carry law is aimed at is choice of material to be carried on a cable system. The cable operator has a choice of a number of different sources from which it can obtain programming, including, as, as you suggest, Justice Souter, creating its own programming. And what the must-carry law deliberately aims at doing is saying, when you make that choice, you must make it in a way that the government directly controls. And not because the government is saying you're engaging in some anti-competitive behavior, simply because the government <coughs> excuse me, wants you to make a different choice. Because the significance of that, in, in a way, is, is easy if, if we use the, the uh, terms like editorial discretion, which have taken on a meeting from the, from the newspaper context, but this doesn't quite fit the newspaper context. I suppose the, the position that the carrier is in here, the operating company is in here, is somewhere in between that of the newspaper and the telephone company. Uh, and how should we decide whether the significance of a limitation on editorial discretion should be analyzed as if it were a newspaper uh, or, on the other hand, as if we were looking at it uh, as, a, as an analog to the phone company? Well, it, it seems to me that one... The term editorial discretion means a particular thing. It means that a business which is engaged in providing speech to the public, and the court has recognized that that's what cable systems do, is in fact making decisions about what material it would be, whether it is public television stations, alternative to public television stations. Mr. Father, they're not making particular decisions. If they're, if they're carrying a programmer or they're carrying a broadcaster, they're not deciding what that broadcaster, each individual uh, program, they're making a, a, a gross decision. That's correct, and, Justice Ginsburg. They are, they are not deciding each moment of the day what is put on a particular channel. That is something that the programmer itself does. I think one of the briefs suggested a better term would be an entrepreneurial decision rather than an editorial well, Your Honor, I mean, to, to begin with, uh, the, the term editorial discretion is, in fact, a term that this Court has used in, in preferred and other cases with respect to what the cable operators are doing. So I'm, I'm not simply creating it out of thin air. But I think it is an entrepreneurial decision in the sense that any member of, of the media who is choosing speech is choosing it in part, at least, for entrepreneurial reasons. The question is what, in fact, do the subscribers to a cable system, the readers of a newspaper, the patrons of a bookstore or a movie theater, what will interest them? What will they come to see? What will they pay but money that, that's to see or hear? That's an economic decision, not a literary or choice one. Well, it's a combination of the two. It seems to me that, uh, that any member of the media can make decisions and to say, for example, that we are simply going to say that you are making a decision for an economic reason. If, if a newspaper decides that it's going to carry a particular political uh, cartoonist because that political cartoonist is popular and that will increase circulation, that may be entirely a business decision. But that's certainly something we don't think the government can step in and preempt. So, the, indeed, this, this goes very much to the point that, that I'm trying to make, which is it seems to me that government does have a legitimate interest in saying when you are acting in a way that we typically prohibit 
under the antitrust laws, the laws that regulate competition, then when we tell you that you can't exercise your discretion for that reason, in order to injure somebody anti-competitively, then we have the power to impose some regulation. But when government goes further and says, we're going to control all your decision-making with respect to a particular subject, whether you're acting anti-competitively or not, then it seems to me to have crossed a very important line. Well, of course, we, you, I guess we can argue about Judge Williams' solution uh, uh, if and when it's ever adopted. I, I suppose you really don't have to fight whether that's... Uh, feasible or not, do you? I mean, what's happened here is that the government has not said you must uh, make your, your channels available to everybody. They've said you must make your channels, channels available to this person. Well, that's correct. So it isn't really the same thing as, as what's done with the telephone company. That, that is correct. I, mean, I the, think the, Justice O'Connor's question was whether in your, based on your argument, least access, least access would be equally unconstitutional. You're arguing that must carry is unconstitutional. Would least access as a substitute for it, also be unconstitutional? I, I think that is a closer question, and let me explain why. The difficulty that I have with least access from the standpoint of cable systems is that, like the must-carry law, it does take away the discretion to program particular channels, and as I mentioned before, it doesn't do that based on any determination that there is anti-competitive activity. It simply makes the decision that we are going to preempt the programming for those channels. What it does not have is the element of pure discrimination against particular programmers and in favor of other programmers. So in that sense, it does not have one of the evils that the must-carry law has. Can you explain one thing to me, because I think it, it was the, the nub of, of the answer that you just gave, and that is... Judge Williams relied very heavily uh, in, in his opinion on the fact that the FCC requires uh, certain elements of content in local programming, uh, and, and therefore, a fortiori, uh, it, it is required by must-carry. Um, would your argument then uh, equate uh, must-carry with least access if the government stopped regulating, through the FCC, stopped regulating the content of local programming? Would they then be on par... I, I would not put them specifically on a par because I think it still is a particular discrimination in favor of identified speakers. And I think it would be illusory, frankly, to assume that government is not generally aware of what speech on broadcast station consists of. In indeed, even apart from particular regulation by the FCC, there are specific laws that Congress has enacted that deal with programming on broadcast stations. So I would still have but a they, concern. They deal with programming on all broadcast stations, so that your identification of the speaker would, stim would, would be purely geographic at, the, at that point, wouldn't it? In the sense that... I mean, i.e. local. The, the, only, the only way you'd identify them would be their, their, their point of origin rather than anything to do with their content, let alone their prescribed content. Well, well for example, if, if I understand the question, Justice Souter, a, a law that says that a broadcast station cannot have indecent material, let's say, that is a law that applies to broadcast stations throughout the country. So Congress could know that if it's expressing a preference for broadcast stations, that it is therefore at the same time really expressing a preference for stations that are subject to that law and that restriction on their speech in ways that other possible programmers would not be. That, that would distinguish, I guess this is my point of ignorance, that would distinguish between cable and broadcast? 
the cable that, operators can be yeah. indecent? They, they are not subject to, the, to some of the same restrictions on their speech that broadcast stations are. And I think that is because they do not share the physical spectrum, this, the, the spectrum and, the, and the physical scarcity rationale has not been applied to them. Mr. Fire, Congress has if, not done that. If a municipality is reviewing bids for a cable company, and let's assume economically there can probably be only one cable company, I take it it's entitled to assess the cultural offerings of the different programs from the different bidders? Well, I am not sure that I would give them much leeway in that regard, quite honestly. I mean, I think if, they are, if, if what government is doing is essentially trying to use a franchising process where there is perfectly adequate room for other cable operators to function because there's plenty of space for, uh, on the rights of way for additional lines or additional cables. If government is using that process as a way to start to, to press for distinctions in speech, then I find that troubling. Now, I think it's probably unrealistic to assume that when local governments are considering applications that they don't take into account something on the grounds of content. But my general feeling is that that should be at a very, very attenuated level if it's well, permitted let, Mr. at all. Mr. Farr, let's suppose that a municipality decides we don't want our telephone poles cluttered with a lot of things, so we're only going to be able to have one cable television within the... Uh, and there are three or four applicants. Now, aren't they entitled to make some judgment as to at least which the majority of the pe people in the municipality might prefer? Assuming the premise, I, I think it is possible that there is some very modest leeway for that. Well, why but, should it be modest? Well, because, well, well first of all, because I, I, I do quarrel with the premise, quite honestly. When, well, accept the premise. Uh, the, but I think the premise is important to it. I, I mean, I, I will accept it, but I think the premise is important to it because the question that one is always asking when, when one is extending government leeway to, to get into content is why are we allowing government to do this? Typically, government is not allowed to do it. So if the answer is because we have no choice, Essentially, government is in a position, as it is in the broadcasting situation, where there is a spectrum which can only accommodate so many speakers, and the government, therefore, has to shut down other speakers, has to silence particular speech. Then the government has been accorded some greater leeway with respect to the speech that gets on. That really doesn't exist with cable operators. And therefore, it seems to me, if a local government says, we are only going to have one cable system, something which I point out, Congress is now prohibited in the 1992 Act. But if they say that, really they're using one power, the power to grant rights of way, to essentially leverage themselves into a second power to control content. And I do find that troubling. So you say that if there are 10 cable companies that apply and the municipality says we only want one, the First Amendment says, no, you have to take all ten, no matter how cluttered the streets get. No, no, I would not suggest that, that cities have that um, uh, obligation to allow all comers to come in. I mean, essentially, that's the issue that the court yeah, but okay, had before well, and preferred. You have a number of, of observations around the fringe, but uh, how, how about the actual situation where you have several applicants, the city says, well, we're only going to take one. When the city says that, and there is no absolute requirement that the city has to take one in the sense that it could easily accommodate others, then it seems to me the city's power to discriminate on the basis of content is very limited if it exists at all. So 10 applicants, 
the city says we're only going to take one, the applicants could make out a case that physically with a lot of cluttering you might be able to take three or four. The city can do nothing? It has to take all ten? No, no, I'm not saying that it has to take all ten. I'm saying that its basis for choosing among them cannot be dictated by its views about the content of programming. If, for example, they say, we will accept, we will give preference in the application process to cable, opera, to, to cable operators who agree that they will, will not show the following 25 cable networks. They will go into an upper tier if they agree not to show these. I think that would be impermissible. Mr. Farr, to what extent is the scarcity rationale undercut by uh, current technology? I guess we, we have now coming online satellite services that will provide hundreds of channels with a tiny dish That's correct. available, That's so there would be no scarcity. We have fiber optics coming online, and they have virtually unlimited capacity. Does this undercut the scarcity rationale in your view? Well, I think it changes part of it. I, I think what clearly is happening in the communications world is there are a number of new technologies, which means that the opportunities for those who want to reach the public are greatly increasing. And I think they're going to accelerate in the next 10 and 15 years. In the particular scarcity rationale, really the only scarcity rationale that this court has recognized, deals with one specific thing, which is the electromagnetic spectrum and the, the limitations on assigning licenses based on frequencies in the spectrum. That spectrum is not really changing. So in, in that sense, there still is physical scarcity. It would seem to me that the difficult question in the broadcasting context, none of which I, I hasten to point out applies to cable, is even if you still have scarcity of the spectrum, given all the other ways that people can reach the public through other technologies, is the regulation that has been premised on the scarcity still justified? And it seems to me that is the question that the court has suggested <clears throat> that it is at some point willing to reconsider in League of Women Voters. But Mr. Paul, what does it do to your argument that many cable companies have, say, only 30-odd channels now? Uh, and one of the reasons you say you don't want to be forced to carry is that you then have to give up something. Now, I can understand your point about the favored position that you're, you're required to give to broadcasters, but if it's going to, if there's not going to be any limit on the number of channels that you can have, doesn't that dilute your objection? It's possible in the future, Justice Ginsburg, there may be a situation where essentially the ability of all programmers to reach the public through a cable system is essentially not foreclosed by a law uh, like the Muscarid Law. But I would have a couple of comments. First of all, obviously, we're not at that position now. The Muscarry Law applies today, and nobody disputes the fact that most cable systems have a definitely defined capacity, which is already filled up, and, and therefore any inclusion of broadcast stations necessarily means the exclusion of some other programmer. Secondly, of course, the, the hard thing to speculate about is if at a time when the average cable system <clears throat> has 200 channels, it may be that there are 400 programming services because programming services have expanded to meet the expansion in channel capacity of cable systems as that has occurred. So I think it's hard to say, even in the abstract, that in the future when there are more channels that a preference for a particular kind of programming imposed on operators 
will not be troublesome because there still may be the same need to make choices. Yeah, but how many, how many local, numbers? What is the maximum number of local channels that realistically a, a cable company might be compelled to carry? I, I don't have a precise answer to that. I think we're talking somewhere in the 15 to 20 range. Um, depending, it, it, it depends because... If there are that many local stations that want to be, uh, would request access. That's correct. In well, most markets, there wouldn't be that many. That many stations total. I mean, you have VHF stations, you have UHF stations. If, if that doesn't fill up your number, then you have low power stations, which you're required to carry as well. So the number actually does fill up fairly quickly. Um, so I, I think it is basically correct, although I, I can't say this with absolute assurance, that uh, most cable systems subject to must carry are finding that through the combination of stations that are being carried through retransmission consent and those carried pursuant to must carry, they are filling up their limit. Based on what we've said so far, I assume that the must carry provision for public broadcasting is the most vulnerable based on the content argument. Is that correct? I think that certainly there are specific findings, Justice Kennedy, about the public television stations' content, although there are still findings of a slightly less specific nature about the commercial stations. So frankly, I don't make much distinction between well, the two. Well, if, if we assume for the moment that it's the most vulnerable, and if we assume also for the moment, there can be debate about it, but if you assume that that's there's the most justifiable uh, provision from the standpoint of improving our young people's intellectual life, uh, does that mean there's something wrong with our doctrine? Well, I don't think so. Um, it seems to me that the doctrine permits <coughs> um, choices by cable operators, and there is no reason to expect, based on history, that in fact cable operators aren't interested in providing programming that people want to see anyway. Most cable operators voluntarily, without must carry, since 1986, when the rules were struck down, have carried the vast majority of stations. I mean, 95 to 98 percent is, is uh, an affidavit that we submitted uh, in the joint appendix at page 305 suggests 98 percent of the stations have been voluntarily carried, including public television stations. Why? Because there is, in fact, a demand. There is a certain kind of programming on public television stations that the public wants. And the one thing, it seems to me, that is clear is that cable systems have the primary incentive to provide programming that the subscribers want rather than incentives to drop broadcast stations the for other reasons. That's true. Aren't you saying the must-carry rules just largely just make the cable companies carry what they carry anyway? I think that's correct in a sense, Justice Stevens. Maybe the fight isn't quite as serious as it sounds on the surface. Well, it's, it's serious in one sense. I mean, if, if, if we're saying that this is going to dramatically change the face of television, whether it must carry stands or doesn't stand, I don't think it will for exactly the reason that I'm saying. On the other hand, I do think there is a very real difference between a voluntary decision to utter speech, to use the, the term in First Amendment uh, language, and being compelled to do so. And I assume that, for example, most people voluntarily say the Pledge of Allegiance. But I think then when government says, even if you would voluntarily say it, or even if most people would voluntarily say it, we're going to make it a matter of compulsion, then they have crossed over into an area of unconstitutionality. As I understand your argument this morning, you pretty much are saying that even if we accept all the congressional findings, you should prevail on the theory you've been advancing. 
that would be true, that this law is not tailored to anti-competitive activity and it is based specifically on discrimination among different programmers and that itself is enough to uh, make the law invalid. What if we agree with you, Congress goes back, drops all the findings uh, uh, about content uh, and the value of local origination? and simply sticks to findings about the threat to competition? Well, the, the problem is that simply making findings about the threat to competition, even if they were better substantiated than these findings, which show that, in fact, the stations are being carried, they're not being dropped in order to get advertising revenues, the broadcast, and more broadcast stations are, in fact, carried on cable systems now than when there was must-carry. Congress just says, look, we want to we lock the door before the horses. Right. But the, the difficulty that they, that they would not cure by simply going back and reenacting the same law with anti-competitive findings is the point that I made precisely at the outset. This is not a law directed specifically at anti-competitive conduct. It's not tailored to that problem. So as long as the law reaches all decision-making with respect to broadcast stations, not simply decision-making for anti-competitive reasons, it doesn't make any difference what findings Congress makes. It is not justifying the law on that basis. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Farr. Uh, General Days, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, what Mr. Farr wants the court to do is basically ignore significant elements of the congressional decision to enact the 1992 law. At least two things can be said with conviction about the regulation of electronic media in the United States. First, the federal government made a promise to the American public in 1934 that it would make available so far as possible to all the people of the United States, a rapid, efficient, nationwide and worldwide wire and radio communication, ser communication service. And it expected that the administrative agency charged with promoting that policy would do so consistent with public interest, convenience or necessity, and do so in a way that was fair, efficient and equitable. Second, the electronic media field has been from its beginning to quote Justice Frankfurt in the 1943 National Broadcasting Company case, a field of enterprise, the dominant characteristic of which was the rapid pace of its unfolding. Over the intervening 50 years, Congress has striven to strike a balance in the best interest of the American people, on the one hand, by developing a regulatory framework that does not retard the growth of the electronic media and increased outlets for expression, while on the other, ensuring that growth of the electronic media did not deserve the goals of diversity and broad, equitable, and free geographic distribution of access to electronic media. It is a dynamic, not a static process that has required Congress to be alert to the existence and impact of new technologies. It is a process that goes on as I speak. It is this morning's headline news. We respectfully submit that the lower court correctly upheld the constitutionality of the must-carry provisions of the 1992 Act, finding it essentially economic regulation designed to create competitive balance in the video industry as a whole. Now, Mr. Days, yes. do, you, do you acknowledge that to be valid, the congressional regulation has to be content neutral? Uh, we do not. Uh, we think that... Uh, uh, in this case, there is no focus on, on content. Well, uh, we think it's wait a minute. Maybe I didn't express myself clearly enough. Do yes. you acknowledge the legal principle that 
to be valid, it must be content neutral. I think that if it is not content neutral, then it has to meet a very exacting test that this court has set out. But our position is that this regulation is not uh, content-based. It is content-neutral. It is not focused yeah, I understand on the speaker. That. I was just trying to ascertain whether you take the position or acknowledge that uh, it must be content-neutral to survive. No, not at all. It just requ uh, requires that the regulation meet a higher standard uh, of justification. And, and do you say the same thing about the public broadcast must-carry provision, that that's not content-based? Uh, I think the lower court was correct in referring to it as being content-based uh, in a de minimis sense. And this may get to your point, Justice Kennedy, about the doctrine. Uh, to characterize what Congress has done here in promoting the increase in voices to provide educational uh, and uh, constructive uh, uh, video programming to the public uh, as being content-based is somehow to distort uh, this court's decisions and the doctrines that have developed. Uh, this is not a situation where Congress is focusing on what the, the speakers are saying. Now, with respect to Section 5, it is true that Congress made references to educational uh, television, but I think in only the most generalized sense. It's not a situation where Congress is dictating uh, what those stations must carry. In fact, uh, this court's decisions make very clear that educational stations enjoy editorial discretion and freedom. Uh, that's really the League of Women Voters, and that's also true with respect to local broadcasting. Well, in other words, our doctrine puts you in the position of uh, trying to minimize the content-based aspect of the decision, which might really be its best justification from a cultural standpoint. Well, I, I think, Your Honor, that's why uh, it was our argument uh, on this particular legislation that the existing tools for evaluating it were really not adequate to the task and that it was more productive not to look at the so-called uh, content-related uh, uh, case, uh, cases or doctrines, uh, but rather to look at those regulations uh, or those doctrines that deal with attempting to address market dysfunction and economic scarcity, the inability of uh, speakers to have their messages heard because of control. General, yes. there's one point I wasn't clear on in your presentations, in your brief. Yes. Are you saying, based on your argument that minimal scrutiny should apply here, that there really is no difference in the authority of the government vis-a-vis cable? And on the other hand, radio and broadcasting, radio and, and television broadcasters. We are not. In other words, could, could the government, if it wished, have a fairness doctrine, have an equal time doctrine, have a decent speech regulation with respect to cable operators and programmers as it does for radio and television broadcasting? That is not our position, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, the fact that we relied upon Red Lion was not to suggest that Congress necessarily has the power to regulate cable television in the same way that it does broadcast stations, but simply to ind indicate that the monopoly power of cable may justify some regulations that implicate but do not transgress First Amendment prohibitions. So it the, same, the same argument w was made or won much in the Tornillo case, that Tornillo's only opportunity to have his views heard 
were as if the Miami Herald would publish his letter to the editor. Well, that, certainly that argument was made. I don't think the court actually resolved the question of economic scarcity, but the fact was uh, that there were other ways in which Tornillo could express his, his views and be heard. Well, do you were, think the case would have come out differently if he could have shown, as a matter of fact, that there was really nothing nearly as adequate as publishing his letter to the editor in the Miami Herald to express his views to the public? Mr. Chief Justice, I think that uh, saying that there was nothing quite so adequate uh, is not analogous to this situation. What Congress was looking at was basically a bottleneck, a control, a gatekeeper function that cable was performing with respect to the development of broadcast television. Uh, I think that in the uh, Tornillo case, uh, what we would have to have is a situation where the only way in which Tornillo could express himself was through the Miami Herald or through the newspaper that published the particular article. Excuse me, the, the, it seems to me the programs that, that, that are aired over broadcast television have many other ways to get onto the screen, not to mention many other ways of getting into human minds through the print media. They can get on the screen through, through uh, cassettes that you can take home. They can get on the, street, on the screen through, through cable programs that, uh, that are not over the air. I don't see how... It seems to me there's much more scarcity in the, in the daily, the, which most of our cities have, the single daily newspaper situation than there is in the, in the, in the cable system. Well, uh, Justice Scalia, certainly that argument can, can be made. There are problems there. But again, to divorce the history of Congress's consideration of cable television from what it did in 1992 is to miss the point. This is not Congress deciding one morning when it got up to regulate the cable TV industry. But, but my point is we, we shouldn't look at this as the voice that, that we're trying to get in is the voice of the over-the-air broadcaster. What, what we're talking about is whatever the over-the-air broadcaster chooses to program. And that can get to the, to the, uh, to the viewer through many other means. Uh, they, they can syndicate it in, in cable instead of over the air. They can get it to the viewer on cassettes in a lot of other ways. I don't see how there's this great bottleneck that you're talking about or the individual speaker. Uh, there is the bottleneck uh, insofar as we're talking about Congress's commitment that I just mentioned uh, to the American people to ensure that they were able to get free television service. Not talking about the message. You're talking about about uh, uh, whether you get it free or not. I suppose that's precisely right. We're not talking about the message. Just nothing Scalia. to do with the content. Then that's correct. Well, that's a difficult argument to make in light of uh, the findings that uh, place such stress on the desirability of public television and local broadcasting and discussing local issues and so forth. I think it's very difficult to sustain that argument. Uh, Justice O'Connor. Uh, it, uh, in our view, is not difficult. It may be different, but not difficult in the sense that uh, there is nothing, in our estimation, constitutionally improper or inappropriate for Congress to express its views on the importance of local broadcasting. It's something that it's been doing since 1934 uh, to talk about educational no, uh, television. Congress went ahead on that basis then and uh, set aside a third of a whole medium for the benefit of a favored class of speakers. And so it's a little difficult to justify that well, Your Honor, existing doctrine. I think the, the point is that it's not favoring the broadcast industry in the sense of promoting it plain and simple. The, the idea is to make 
broadcast television available to 40% of those households that do not have cable, and also to make certain that people who have cable get the quality of programming that uh, they deserve, and to the extent that the cable industry, with this tremendous uh, horizontal concentration, vertical concentration, tremendous control over the market uh, present, uh, what Congress envisioned was down the line before long, uh, there would not be that availability, and that's con- why Congress responded. Yeah, but Congress responded. I mean, it seems to me that the point of Justice O'Connor's question is Congress responded by explaining why the content of local programming and, and educational television programming was more desirable uh, or was in itself desirable. They were, they were putting a content justification on it, and, and I don't know how you get over that, that hurdle except perhaps by saying look, the motives were mixed, or on the other hand, we have a justification uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, that, that will, will avail us, even though there is a content basis. Uh, but it's still the case that they have made a decision and have explained the decision on a content basis, haven't they? Justice Souter, uh, certainly there were all kinds of statements and findings, but I think that they go to the point of diversity. It was not Congress saying, now, we're going to allow local stations on cable. We're going to allow educational stations on cable. Sure, but we're going to watch to make certain that you do precisely what we expected. That was not what Congress had in mind. But whenever you get a, 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 uh, a, a particular content which is not otherwise being broadcast, your justification is always diversity. If we don't require it uh, or push someone else aside to allow it in, we will not have diversity to that extent. I don't see what's the, the difference between a diversity argument and a content argument here. And in any event, I don't see how you could make that distinction so long as the government through the FCC does regulate the content uh, to some degree of, of, uh, of the broadcast medium. Yes, it's, it's been suggested that uh, this was perhaps a way in which Congress could control the cable TV industry, but I think this Court's decisions have made very clear that the editorial discretion of even broadcasters is fairly broad and the FCC and the Congress are restricted in the way that they go about regulating that particular uh, part of the, the media. And you conceded that it's, it's, uh, as there are more restrictions on what the legislature could do vis-a-vis the cable, the content of what cable... Certainly, certainly given the record that Congress has compiled up to this point, I don't want to... Uh, preclude Congress is looking at the issue at a later stage, but I think at, at this point, there's nothing in the record that would justify Congress's extending its regulation to cable in the same way that uh, it regulates the broadcast industry. General Days, is it the government's position that it is no violation of the First Amendment to discriminate uh, with respect to speakers so long as there is no discrimination with respect to content? That is, can the government say uh, to a particular individual, you can't talk, and to someone else, you can talk, uh, so long as the government, I don't care what you say, it's just that we don't want you to talk. No, I don't believe that the government can silence people, but this is not a, a situation where cable uh, operators are being silenced, uh, as was suggested in the well, questions about... Saying the broadcasters have to talk, and that means that these other people who want the same space can't talk. But, Justice Scalia, it's a matter of uh, reasonableness and whether it's tailored to the particular problem that Congress identified. And it's our position that in this legislation, that's what Congress did. Well, how closely tailored is it? You say there's this this great problem. They're they're carrying 98% of all of the signals anyway. 
Must well, there, we accept Congress's assessment that there is a major uh, market failure here? I think what Congress identified was an enormous development in the power of the cable TV industry and was projecting down the road the extent to which that power would overcome the ability of broadcast TV to reach the 40 percent. It hadn't happened. When the D.C. Circuit uh, dealt with the FCC regulations, and so must carry was out, there wasn't a huge change, was there? So these findings, what you refer to findings, are more in the nature of predictions. Well, they're not so bad now, but they're going to get worse. Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg, they're not solely predictions. They're based on evidence in the record that Congress considered over many years through many hearings that there were denials of carriage, that there were uh, limitations on carriage, that stations were being dropped, that they were being repositioned. Uh, that's in the record. And I there think were very bad stations that people didn't want to watch, which is why the cable systems didn't have, it, didn't well, have them. That may be the case, but what Congress found was that there was an incentive on the part of uh, cable operators to drop certain stations because of their desire to have greater access to advertising revenue. I thought the ratio for a cable station between the money it gets from advertising and the money it gets from the subscribers is 25 to 1. So if by failing to carry this, uh, this, uh, this single station, they lose one, one subscriber, they, they have to make up from advertising 25 times uh, Justice Scalia, I think that the record reflects that uh, cable operators are carrying network affiliates, but they are dropping some of the independent stations, not because uh, they don't have uh, attractiveness to uh, cable, uh, cable viewers, but because of the fact that if they're dropped, then other stations can be brought on, and those basically benefit the cable operators. So, they also okay. are able to use that. Excuse me. They also are able to use that for their own programming. There's a tremendous integration here. Cable operators owning cable programmers. Cable programmers owning cable operators. To that extent, cable operators do benefit by dropping some broadcast stations that are not affiliated with them. Maybe Congress should pass a law against that. Well, it, and, it's and certainly trying... Who can it, speak and who can't speak. Well, it's, it's not a matter of telling people who can't speak and who can speak. Uh, Congress has uh, dealt with this, for example, uh, uh, with respect to the cross-ownership rules on the grounds that uh, that created a problem within the marketplace for the uh, availability of, of uh, quality programming. But, but in, the, in the present day context, uh, if the networks are being carried, the network affiliates, uh, then what we're talking about is replacing um, marginally successful uh, uh, broadcast stations uh, against marginally successful cable offerings. Is that all this is about? I don't, I don't believe it is, Your Honor. I don't think marginal is, is the right way to describe it. Uh, I think the, the record reflects that even those independent stations uh, that have been dropped or refused carriage actually have more of a, 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 an attractiveness to viewers than some of the cable programs that are put on. And the cable programs are put on because uh, there is this uh, interlinking relationship that stimulates that type of anti-competitive practice. That's uh, what Congress felt was going on. Are there findings to that effect, to the effect that you just described? Uh, yes, yes, they are, uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. There are references in the, in the record. Uh, I can uh, cite the court, for example, to this uh, interrelationship. Uh, in the Senate report, uh, which was an appendix to the Senate brief that was filed in the lower court, 
at pages uh, 00268, there's a chart that was before the Congress indicating top cable networks owned by cable operators, top cable networks not owned by cable operators. And this is part of a discussion uh, that was reflected in this report in Congress over this tremendous concentration. And there is a, is a finding by Congress that the result of this is to put uh, own, uh, subsidiaries, uh, own cables uh, on at the expense of a broadcast station, even though the broadcast station might be preferred by more people? Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, there's a, a finding in the Act at 2A15 uh, discussing the uh, incentives uh, uh, on the part of cable operators to drop uh, commercial and non-commercial stations. Uh, there are also uh, other... But the ex experience, the, the, Mr. Farr gave some figures that, uh, about how little had, uh, the, the, how little had in fact been dropped. And you're not disputing the accuracy of his figures. You point out that, yes, there were some stations that have been dropped. Yes. But it's not an impressive record of what's been, what's been dropped so far. Uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't know about the word impressive, but I think that what it, what it was for Congress was an indication of a problem that ought to be dealt with now rather than waiting until devastation was wrought upon the broadcast industry and uh, uh, companies were either going dark or had so reduced the quality of their programming that they were not legitimate competitors. That well, you know, there was no clear and present danger of anything like that from the signals that had happened. Well, I don't think that's the standard with respect, uh, Justice Ginsburg, in this situation, insofar as Congress is concerned. Uh, Congress, there was a discussion about new technology. Congress was aware of the new technology, and the record uh, reflects the fact that uh, uh, fiber optics and what's called video compression will, before long, present a situation where most cable companies, most cable operators, can have 500 channels. Well, even, even more uh, currently, does the record reflect any findings to the anticipated effect of this new satellite service that will go online within a year that will make virtually unlimited access uh, to people? Uh, Your Honor, Justice O'Connor, I don't have any uh, information uh, to that effect. I do know, in talking about this issue being as current as today's headlines, that the Vice President gave a speech yesterday about this administration's views on the so-called uh, superhighway, information superhighway. And the position of the administration has been that there be open access and program diversity. Uh, what that essentially means is that even with this two new technology, there will be an effort on the part of the administration with the uh, assistance of Congress to ensure precisely the types of things that Congress has tried to achieve in the 1992 Act. But that's, that's more like the, the telephone industry. Uh, the capacity will be virtually unlimited, and Congress on a content-neutral basis can say, okay, serve everybody. I mean, that's, that's a very different proposition than what you have here. It, it is a different proposition, but I think it goes to the issues here in the sense that, uh, one, we have in talking about the burden on cable operators. Uh, one, if they're indeed carrying most of the stations that would be subject to must-carry, there's not a burden. If indeed there's this increased technology, then the must-carry responsibilities are also going to uh, have less of an impact. I think what it, what it shows is that Congress 
was trying to deal with the problem, but not in a blunderbuss fashion. It was not trying to make cable operators common carriers. It was trying to use a very limited mechanism, viewpoint neutral, to deal with the problem that had been identified. And it's not simply a matter of uh, antitrust violations by uh, the cable industry. It's something much more than that. This is, it seems to me very blunderbuss if you're worried about broad... Uh, I gather what underlies all of this supposedly is that Congress is worried about some broadcasters not being able to make it and therefore going out of business. Right? Uh, Justice Scalia, I... In order I, to protect against that, cable systems are required to carry even the richest broadcasters, many of whom make millions of dollars a year. Why isn't that blunderbuss? I mean, why couldn't there be some system, uh, if you talk about narrow tailoring, whereby uh, local broadcasters who can't make it have a right to apply to be, uh, to be admitted to cable systems instead of just generally saying everybody has to be carried. Well, Justice Scalia, Congress has tried to respond to that. Section 6 of the Act, uh, which is disparaged by uh, the other side, by the cable operators and programmers, is in fact a way to allow the more powerful stations to negotiate with the cable operators uh, for uh, carriage, leaving those who are not in the position with market power to negotiate to take advantage of the must-carry provisions. I don't see how that narrows the focus. That, that, that just gives the, the powerful stations double advantage. Not only well, it gives them to be carried if they want to, well, it they gives can them demand a, money to be carried if, uh, if, if the cable wants to carry them anyway. I don't. Uh, well, just an aside, as an aside, I'm not sure that that's working very well. But again, let's put this in context. Cable operators have been able to, to carry broadcast stations free for a number of years with the assistance of Congress. Now, for Congress in 1992 to decide that some stations may be in a position to negotiate with the cable operators uh, does not seem to us to raise any major uh, uh, issues of government regulation of the cable industry. This is a response to, as I was suggesting at the outset, a very long relationship between Congress and the federal government and the cable industry. In 1958, as, at least as early as 1958, Congress recognized the relationship between what was called at the time CATV uh, and uh, the broadcast stations and the possibility that there would be some problems. What you know, Casey, yes. Before you conclude, can you, can you focus attention on the programmer, not the operator? The programmer's argument, I take it, is why am I being disfavored? There, there are several answers. One, uh, the cable operators or the cable programmers do have other outlets. They can sell their programs to, uh, to broadcast stations. It's not a matter of their having to go to cable operations. Secondly, the Act uh, in uh, uh, Section 11, I believe, actually tries to, 11 or 12, tries to get at the problem that independent programmers have been encountering uh, faced with competition by affiliated programmers. So that what Congress has done is try to give them uh, a better position in the competition for access to these channels. But uh, there are uh, public educational and governmental channels that have been given over that can't be used by programmers. There's leased access that cannot be used by programmers. Uh, this is an effort by Congress to deal with another problem in the same way that it dealt with the problems that PEG and uh, the leased access arrangements uh, uh, did. So this is not in any sense an effort to get the programmers. It's consistent with what Congress has tried to do over the years to create a marketplace in which 
people who have televisions without cable and people who have cable uh, availability uh, can get quality program uh, stations, both broadcast and cable, and have the type of diversity of information uh, and education that, as I indicated at the outset, uh, Congress had in mind in 1934. Uh, before I close, I'd like to just respond uh, to uh, some of the questions that were put to Mr. Farr. He was asked about the uh, capacity of stations, how many local stations would have to be carried, and he said 15. Uh, I think that's very high. For one thing, the Act recognizes that there does not have to be duplication, uh, so that in the uh, case where there are 15 stations, there's bound to be uh, some duplication. Uh, Congress also found that 9,000 of the 11,000 cable operators had unused capacity. And just to pick up uh, in closing on uh, the questions about a municipality and whether it could make decisions about which cable operator to carry based in part on programming, uh, Mr. Farr uh, gave a very modest response uh, by suggesting uh, modest regulations. But I think the fact is that what this case presents as uh, do those hypotheticals is a situation where economic regulation, where the need to ensure uh, that uh, the best services provided to a community uh, comes into the decision-making process. Thank you. Thank you, General Days. Uh, Mr. Farr, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> I'd just like to briefly address, if I may, a few of the points of the economic theory <clears throat> excuse me, on which the government is relying. First of all, I could not emphasize more strongly that this is not a law that is tailored to the economic problem that the government is talking about. It's the problem set out at uh, findings 15 and 16 at 6 and 7 of the joint appendix, which is that cable operators will drop popular programming in order to divert advertising revenues. That's the theory on which it is based. But the law does not prohibit cable operators from dropping broadcast stations for that reason. It prohibits them from dropping them for any reason, however protected that might be in First Amendment terms. But second, if one looks at this practice, which the government is identifying, <clears throat> and the supposed threat to the local broadcast system, which is what is uh, predicted in Finding 16, there are two immediate problems worth it. First of all, as I have said, Seven years of experience without must carry show that, in fact, cable operators drop very few broadcast stations. And, of course, even the numbers that are shown by the government don't reflect the fact that cable operators also drop cable stations. They're, they're changing their programming as time goes on. So many cable programmers have been dropped during this period, too, from particular stations. But in addition to that, they carry virtually all stations. They carry the most popular stations, which are their greatest competitors for advertising revenues. The FTC staff study that we lodged with the court last week shows that of the stations that are dropped, they either don't compete for advertising because they're public TV stations, or in fact, they are very little watched, so they are very weak competitors for advertising. And overall, the number of stations carried on broadcast systems has gone up. And Congress clearly expects this to continue because in Section 6, the retransmission consent provision, it gave broadcast stations the right to demand payment for carriage. So obviously, the incentive to carry popular programming for subscribers, where most of the money comes from, is much greater than any incentive to drop stations in order to get advertising revenues. 
I'd like to make two other brief points. First of all, there has been discussion about the term content-related. And I would simply like to say, I think it's important to recognize that this has two different meanings, both of which are implicated in this case. This law is content-related in one sense because it specifically dictates the kind of programming, or at least who provides the programming that is seen on somebody's television screen. So it is putting this programming on instead of this programming, the programmer who is knocked off. And second, the reason it's doing that is also content-based, because Congress, as the findings suggest, has a preference for local programming, for the kind of programming seen on public TV stations. Uh, you agree it's not viewpoint uh, discriminatory? It's not viewpoint discriminatory. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Farr. The case is submitted.